It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of rape, murder, and violence against women. Also note that, as usual, we'll be listing our sources at the end of the episode. It was around 10 p.m. on August 12, 1971, when the customer decided to make a quick stop at Winchell's Donut House. She found what she wanted easily enough and made her purchase. The clerk on duty was Sherry Martin, a friendly 17-year-old who planned to head off soon to study at Dixie College. But it wasn't an entirely pleasant experience for the customer. She saw two men there, sitting at a table, drinking coffee. One of the men said something profane, and she turned and glared at them. And then she walked out, leaving the men alone with a teenage girl. This was the moment they had been waiting for. 
About half an hour passed before anyone noticed something was wrong. A police officer happened to notice that Winchell's donut house was dark and looked closed, even though it was supposed to be open all night. He investigated and found Sherry's car in the parking lot, but she was gone. And so was all the money in the cash register, about $83. But the coffee cups the men used were still there, and one of them had fingerprints. They found Sherry a few weeks later, on September 4th. She had been shot eight times with a thirty-two caliber weapon while she was naked. Then, inexplicably, her assailants had dressed her and wrapped her in a blanket. Her hands were tied together with her own nylons. Sherry's body was so decomposed that it was impossible to tell if she was raped. Her killers had taken her from the Salt Lake City donut shop and then dumped her remains 15 miles southwest of Windover, Nevada. In the weeks between when Sherry went missing and her body was discovered, another woman at another donut shop went missing. Her name was Leora Looney, and before she disappeared, witnesses reported seeing two men in the Lakewood, Colorado donut joint. Leora was found much quicker than Sherry. Her body was discovered just three days after she went missing. She had been strangled, shot, and raped. The crimes were similar enough that the police began to suspect that the same men were responsible for each of them. And that was a terrifying possibility. Because if they weren't caught soon, then they would surely kill again and again and again. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenley. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout Season 1 to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is The Donut Shop Killers. Let's take a small step back in time and meet Sherman McCrary and his family. Sherman was 47 and lived in the small town of Athens, Texas, with Carolyn, his 45-year-old wife, and Danny, their 19-year-old son. His 22-year-old daughter, Ginger, lived nearby with Carl Raymond Taylor, her 38-year-old husband. 
Before settling down in Athens, the family journeyed across the southwestern United States, scraping together a living at whatever jobs they could turn up as ranch hands or at honky-tonk carnivals. But there was a problem. Sherman McCrary had a bad back that made it all but impossible for him to do physical labor without pain. So he needed to find another way to make a living. In 1971, he decided to turn to crime, to make a business of it. He had some experience in that area. He had been found guilty of a robbery in 1962. And in 1965, he'd escaped from a prison farm. His son-in-law, Carl Taylor, also had a record. If anything, it was longer than McCrary's rap sheet. Taylor had been convicted for forgery, burglary, robbery, and escape. But Taylor didn't have much of a guilty conscience about his crimes. Here's what he told one probation officer. I know that what I'd done was all morally and legally wrong. However, all the money that I have taken went to support my wife and family. I do not drink to excess. I take maybe one or two drinks a day, but even then, not every day. I do not run around or anything of that sort. I spent all my time and all my money with my wife and family. Sherman's son Danny grew up in this environment. One of his probation reports said he was reared in a family in which criminality was a way of life. But he hadn't racked up much of a criminal record before 1971. His troubles with the law were relatively minor. He'd been convicted of breaking and entering autos and being drunk in public. And then there were the women, who, by all accounts, took a back seat to the men when it came to decision-making. Sherman's wife Carolyn stood 4 feet 11 inches and weighed a mere 83 pounds. A probationary report described her, a bit cruelly, as very limited in both intellectual and social levels. On that same report, Carolyn wrote, I am guilty of staying with my husband when he committed robberies because I don't have anywhere else to go and most people won't hair because I don't have a kitchen and am in poor health or am not large enough so I stayed with my husband. It may sound crazy, but I love him very much. Her daughter Ginger, who was married to Carl Taylor, seemed to have a similar attitude, telling law enforcement, I love my husband very much and it never occurred to do anything other than to stay with him. I guess that staying with him and doing what my husband told me to do was born and raised into me, because I never really thought that there was really anything else for me to do. The family didn't come up with any super elaborate plans when they decided to embark on their spree. They would just clamber into a vehicle, perhaps one that was stolen, drive a long ways away from Athens, commit their crime, being careful, of course, not to leave any witnesses. And so they would go to places like donut shops, rob the places, and then force the clerk on duty into their car. After they drove to a secluded place, the men of the family tended to rape the young woman they'd kidnapped, sometimes in full view of their wives. Ginger and Carolyn never lifted a finger to protect these women. It never occurred to them to question anything their husbands did. Besides, as Carolyn once explained, These women weren't kin of hers. When the men finished with their victims, they would kill them. The family would then head back to Athens and stay there until they decided it was time to commit their next crime. 
Even with their frequent Texas interludes, the family maintained an active schedule. It was, for instance, Carl Taylor's fingerprint on the coffee cup left at the Sherry Martin kidnap scene. And the female customer would eventually identify Taylor and McCrary as the men she saw there that night. Taylor would eventually plead guilty to the first-degree murder of Leora Looney, and a jury would convict Sherman McCrary for his role in that crime. But that was all in the future. The family would not be identified and captured for months, and so quite a few more people would suffer and die at their hands. Let's take a quick break from the murder sheet to tell you about a podcast investigating yet another unforgettable crime. The Orange Tree is a seven-part series about a 2005 homicide that happened near the University of Texas at Austin. The murder of 21-year-old Jennifer Cave, who was shot, dismembered, and left in a bathtub at her friend Colton Petoniak's apartment, continues to haunt the area to this day. Like the Burger Chef murders, this case features plenty of twists and turns, including Colton's flight to Mexico with another UT student, Laura Hall. Both were later convicted in connection with the crime, although Colton has continued to appeal his verdict and claim innocence. The business student turned convicted murderer now says that he doesn't even remember much about the night Jennifer died. The Orange Tree is reported on and produced by Haley Butler and Tanu Thomas, who were both seniors at the University of Texas when they started this project. Together, Haley and Tanu strive to piece together this tragic story in an in-depth podcast that features audio from courtroom scenes and interrogation rooms, prison phone calls, and exclusive interviews with both the perpetrators and the victim's family. You can binge all seven episodes of The Orange Tree today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's roe.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. 
Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, back to the murder sheet. On September 28th, 1971, Elizabeth Perryman, a waitress at the Tuttle House in Lubbock, Texas, called the cab company where her husband worked at around 9.30 p.m. She said she needed a ride home. But the McCrary-Taylor family got there first. By the time Elizabeth's husband arrived at around 10 p.m., the restaurant was closed up and Elizabeth was not there. $86 was missing from the cash register. They did not find her until December 19th. She had been shot in the head. A couple of weeks later, on October 17th, the family was in Mesquite, Texas, a suburb of Dallas. 19-year-old Gina Covey worked as the night manager of a Mr. M grocery store there. Forrest, her 22-year-old husband, brought her dinner and stayed to help her out until closing time. And then Carl Taylor and Sherman and Danny McCrary showed up. Danny would later tell the police what happened next. He said Taylor ordered him to drive to the back of the store. Seconds later, both of the Coveys were forced to enter the car at gunpoint. Sherman and Taylor repeatedly promised the young couple they would not be hurt, and then Taylor told Danny to drive to a barn. Danny followed the order. Here's what he told police later. Carl and my father told the man and woman to get out of the car and go inside. I remember seeing Carl holding a gun on the man, and I saw all four of them go into the barn. Danny followed them in. I remember seeing the man and woman lying face down on the floor, and my father and Carl tying their hands behind their backs with wire. Carl got up and stepped back and reached into his pocket and got a pistol out. I got mad and walked back to the car. I heard a bunch of shooting, and I could see the feet of the man and the woman, and they were not moving. I saw my father and Carl walking from the barn. Carl drove the car back to the house in Mesquite. It was late when we got back home. Sherman and Taylor netted about $125 from that robbery. Danny's share was $10 or $20. In plenty of true crime tales from the 1970s, an era marked by violence and serial predators and a lack of sophistication around crime scene forensics, the cops would still be flat-footed around this time. But, despite the sprawl of jurisdictions, law enforcement agencies were starting to put the pieces together identifying a pattern of violent robberies and murders against retail clerks. And they did fine work on this case, joining together to investigate these crimes. But the frightening truth is that sometimes, even when the police do everything absolutely perfectly, it still may not be enough to stop the slaughter. And so the killings continued. On October 20th, 1971, the murderer's family took 16-year-old Susan Darlene Shaw from the Mesquite Donut Shop. Searchers found her a few days later, floating face down at Lake Ray Hubbard. She had been raped and shot six times. It didn't stop there. On November 30, 1971, 
the family stopped at Neil's Beauty Shop, which was on a country road between Keystone Heights and Melrose, Florida. Bobby Turner and Patricia Marr, the owner-operators of the business, were murdered there. A customer found the shot-up, mostly naked bodies of the two women in a storage room at the beauty shop. But the family did take one hostage. Turner's 16-year-old daughter Valerie was in the shop that day, and they forced her at gunpoint into their vehicle. People discovered her body in the woods about six months later. And it happened at least one more time. On February 19, 1972, Sherman McCrary and Carl Taylor took Cynthia Ann Glass. She worked as a clerk at the Get and Go Market in Portland, Oregon. Much later, Carl would tell the police about it. The story seemed numbingly, horribly familiar to anyone who had been following this case. He said he and Sherman robbed the place and then forced Cynthia into their car. They drove into the woods. McCrary raped her, and then Taylor did too. Then the men made her get out of the car. Taylor had his gun on her, and Cynthia stared at it, frozen. Then they both shot her dead and drove off. There may have been even more victims. Authorities would speculate that the family could have been responsible for as many as 22 murders. And it is easy to believe that they could have killed even more people than that. But we have told you about the murder cases we believe can most plausibly be connected to the family. In the early part of 1972, the family changed their method of operation. They pulled up stakes from Athens, Texas, and moved the whole clan to a couple of houses in a middle-class area near Santa Barbara. They still committed robberies in California. But now they were hitting places like grocery stores, which offered much larger takes than donut shops. And, for whatever reason, they largely stopped murdering and raping their victims. That may come as a surprise. We have this idea that serial killers continue their murderous rampages until they're captured or killed. But the reality is that there's no universal rules when it comes to evil men. The beginning of the end came for them on June 16, 1972. Taylor drove to a Giordano's market in Santa Barbara to rob it. Things went very, very bad, very, very quickly. He got $3,000, but he also attracted some attention. Patrolman Dennis Huddle came on the scene and began pursuing the fleeing Taylor. In desperation, Taylor commandeered a getaway car and started firing his weapon at Huddle. The patrolman was struck in the temple, and Taylor got away. Danny McCrary told the police what happened next. Taylor came to the house, and he come in, and he was scared up. He come in and was pretty white, and he had a few marks on his side. I asked him what happened. He said, I think I killed a police. So we asked him about it. I asked him to tell us what happened, and he asked me if we wanted any of the money, and my dad told him no, he didn't want none of it. Wanted nothing to do with it, and that's how it was. Meanwhile, back at the grocery store, Huddle was rushed to the hospital. The police officer would actually survive his grievous wound. The local police got to work investigating the crime scene and discovered the car Taylor used to get to the market sitting abandoned in the store lot. 
they traced it back to Taylor, went to his house, and found the stolen getaway car just sitting in his garage. They immediately arrested him and his wife, Ginger. Their next stop was the McCrary home. They arrested Sherman, Carolyn, and Danny as accessories to the robbery, and then searched the place. They found $2,000 in cash, a theatrical makeup kit, and guns. Ballistics tests on those weapons would tie them to the murders the family had committed. Their crime spree was finally over. The family did not, however, get convicted of every crime for which they bore responsibility. The authorities seemed satisfied to nail the men on just a single charge. No one, after all, could serve more than one life sentence in prison. Sherman McCrary was sentenced to life and 29 to 30 years in prison for his role in the loony murder and kidnapping. He ended up hanging himself in his cell with an extension cord in 1988. He was 62. In the note he left behind, McCrary said he was just old and tired of doing time. Carl Taylor pled guilty to the loony murder and is now serving a life sentence with the possibility of parole in Colorado. His next parole hearing is scheduled for May of 2021. It seems baffling that a serial murderer and rapist could even be considered for an early release from prison, but we reckon that California would swoop in on the off chance that Colorado deemed Taylor suitable for release. Danny McCrary got a life sentence for his role in the murder of the Coveys. He died in 2007. The women of the family got off a bit easier. Carolyn McCrary was ultimately sentenced to two years in jail after pleading guilty for accessory after the fact in the loony death. And Ginger McCrary made a deal. In exchange for testifying before the grand jury about Leora's murder, she did not face any charges for her role in that crime. Instead, she got a three- to five-year sentence for passing 33 bad checks. At the time of her sentencing, she indicated she planned to divorce her husband and begin a new life. The treatment of the women members of the family sparked quite a bit of discussion between Anya and myself this week. Frankly, we have completely different perspectives on it. The fact that the women sat back and watched passively as their men raped and murdered innocents is horrifying. Ginger and Carolyn bear a share of the moral responsibility for the fates of all of the family's victims. But it seems to me that the women lived in a nightmarish and emotionally abusive environment, that they were so beaten down that it did not even occur to them that they even had the option of standing up to their men and saying, stop. They are monsters, but they are also pathetic. And it seems to me that their share of the blame is much less than that of their husbands. I personally think that Kevin's view is far too lenient. To be clear, the men of the McCrary-Taylor family are responsible for their vile actions. Reading about all the suffering they caused, all the violence and terror they directed at young women just trying to earn a bit of money through hard work, is nauseating. But it's also sickening to think that these two women could sit by passively, listening to the frightened cries of these victims, just doing nothing. It's one thing for a person to look the other way when they suspect a romantic partner is capable of bad actions. 
It's an entirely other thing to witness horrors like rape and murder again and again and take no action. To say that these women participated in the torture and killing of other women because they were raised in the sexist society frankly strips them of all agency. Perhaps they were socialized to be more deferential to the males in their families. Well, plenty of women are, and few of those women sink to this level. In my view, Carolyn's quote about not viewing the victims as her kin was telling. It speaks to a coldness, an apathy toward anyone outside of the family. If I'd been a prosecutor in this case, I would have pushed for more time for either Ginger or Carolyn or both. Because I just keep thinking about what the victims must have felt, trapped by this family, being brutalized by these horrible men, and then seeing these two women sitting there, just watching. Though this crime spree is largely forgotten today, it attracted a great deal of press coverage at the time. Some major newspapers did fine work on the case. For instance, John Kindle's November 11, 1972 article for the Los Angeles Times gave an overview of a probation report prepared on the family that we found very helpful. But perhaps the most impressive coverage came from small regional papers that covered the shocking murders that occurred in their area. Papers like the Lubbock Avalanche, the Bonham Daily Favorite, and the Longview Daily News all did exemplary work on the parts of the crime spree that took place in their own backyard. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MurderSheet and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to MurderSheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.